Hey guys, it's Lauren Schmidt, Director of Ministry at Christ Centered Church, and you are listening to Christ Centered Cast. Oh, think before you act. I came across the bottom of the screen there at the uh, end of the Pixar cartoon, and that message was whimsically delivered by the Pixar short that we just saw. As people, we can be tempted, like those birds, to react to situations, circumstances, and people. Or we can even uh, try to proact without considering the scriptures in our decision-making. So we see a situation, and even when we try to think ahead, we can think ahead in the flesh and, and without the Spirit of God and make decisions that are devoid of Christ's influence and the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. As believers, however, God wants something better for us, though. He wants us to think and then act in a way that reflects Jesus Christ and is founded on what the Bible tells us about what he, uh, on him and what he has done. So therefore, we do think ahead, but we think with the foundation of Scripture and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's leading. That's important to realize because that is essentially the essence of the book of Ephesians. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we are going to be going through the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians is very interesting because it's laid out very intentionally, both by Paul who wrote it and by the Holy Spirit that inspired it. As part of God's plan, Ephesians is an amazing book that starts with the first three chapters of it being about how we should think. It's three chapters that we can go to to understand who we are in Jesus Christ and the implications that that should have for how we think and then eventually how we live, which is the second three chapters, four, five, and six. Those chapters are about how to live as a Christian, about what to do in the various relationships of our lives, how to treat one another, how to act when we're around others, Excuse me. And it deals with the behavior. So what you have in the first three chapters is belief. And the last three chapters, four, five, and six, is behavior. And one of the best things I want to challenge and encourage you to do, and I'm going to try to encourage everyone to do this throughout, is that throughout the course of this series, take the time and make the time to read through the letter to the Ephesians, six chapters, all in one sitting. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever done in my Bible reading, because you read it as it was intended, as a, as a letter, and you get the, the whole thought flow from beginning to end. And it doesn't take very long because, again, it's only six chapters. But if you get the chance, make the chance to do that. It's awesome. So Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And he wrote this letter from prison. And he wanted his audience, which was very diverse and multicultural. You had those who were coming out of Judaism as well as those who uh, were not Jewish, but were uh, they understood Judaism, and they, they understood what Paul was doing when he talked about bringing the Gentiles in and grafting the Gentiles in and all those things. So it was a very diverse church from the standpoint of religious background and cultural background in many ways, because you were dealing with the Jewish people and the Hellenists. And he wanted them to understand that how we live and how we behave should be driven by how we think, and what we think about matters. And our understanding of who Jesus Christ is should impact not only how we think, but also how we live. He wanted them to understand how to live out theology in a practical way. To not just react as human beings in the flesh, and not just to proact by what we think is right with the wisdom of the world, which he talks about in some of the other epistles, but rather the wisdom of God. And he wanted them to understand very practically how to do that. And he, he wanted them to not only understand that, but he wanted them to understand that the core of their thinking and their thought should be on the blessings that they've received from God. Because when you understand how truly blessed you are as a Christian and as a believer, it should impact how you live, how you 
behave. Rather than living in a way that is constantly seeking and searching, which is what the world tells us to do, the world tells us to never be happy, to, to never understand how blessed we are, to constantly be striving for something. Whereas the Word of God and Jesus Christ and Paul in his writings wants us to know just how blessed we are, and as a result of that blessing then, think and act accordingly. He does it in a very interesting way. In fact, tonight we're going to look at the first 14 verses, primarily 3 through 14, of chapter 1 in Ephesians. And what we need to see, which is really kind of neat, and the actual title of this message is, this is the sentence that never ends, because verses 3 through 14 actually is a sentence that seems like it never ends. Because in the Greek, there is absolutely no punctuation. Have you ever encountered anyone that was so excited about something? that they just talked and talked and talked about it, and you wondered if they were ever going to come up for air and breathe? Well, that's kind of what we get with Paul here. I think sometimes we imagine Paul being this very serious theologian. No, but what, what I think is most amazing here about Ephesians is he just seems so excited about all these things that he's sharing with the church at Ephesus, all these blessings that he understands that we have as believers. And he's so excited that he's not bothering to punctuate in the letter. It's just one long Greek sentence, all the way from 3 through 14, if you can just imagine that. And I think it's something that we need to get excited about, too. Rather than going, oh, three chapters of theology, let's get to the practical stuff. I think it's very important to realize that we can be excited, and should be excited, about everything that God has done for us, and about how that should impact how we live. And he wants the the Ephesian believers to understand not only the blessings that they've received, but also where those blessings come from. Because again, it's very easy to go. And tonight, as we look at Ephesians, verses 1 through 14, but more specifically 3 3 through 14, we're going to understand and see the sources of the blessings that we've received from God and, and where they've come from, specifically of the Trinity which is really cool when you take the time to break down and look at it. So tonight, as we look at this section of Scripture, we're going to see the three main sources of our blessings as believers, where they come from, why that matters, and even what they are. So as we look at the text, we we read the intro in the beginning, his greeting, we'll read it again very briefly. Paul writes in in verse 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and then he expounds, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So it's almost like a word of encouragement, and he's giving them some kind of exhortation to be faithful in Christ Jesus. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to expound these three main sources of blessings. And we see as we look at the text, beginning in verse 3, we find that the first believer blessing source we find in Scripture in this particular passage is God the Father. And that's how he starts out verse 3. He says to them, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So 
Folks, we're like halfway through one really long sentence there, right? But that sentence is so jam-packed with such great theology that helps us understand how to think, which then helps us understand how to live. And we see that the very first source in this passage is God the Father who's blessed us. And he's blessed us in some very significant ways that I think, as Christians, we sometimes take for granted. We find the particular ways that God has blessed us. The first way that he's blessed us in particular in this passage we see is that he chose us. He chose us in verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. As humans, we think like humans oftentimes, and we only think in terms of the, the aspect of our lives, birth to death. Maybe as believers, we sometimes think about what's beyond, or even where we, maybe where we came from. But we don't often think back to the fact that God chose us way before we were even come to come into being. That he chose you, and that he has planned for your life, and has had one seemingly forever and ever, from whenever he essentially conceived of you. Which, again, it just kind of boggles and blows the mind, right? Because we're talking about an eternal God who has no beginning. So we don't know officially when that was the thing, or if we can even understand it. But what we do know is that we're chosen, and that he chose you. And sometimes when we get discouraged about where we feel like God is in our lives and whether or not you know, he's listening or calling out to him, and I preached on this several weeks ago about what it feels like when God has ghosted us. We can take comfort in knowing that we're chosen, that he chose us, that he chose you specifically, and, and really called you to himself through Jesus Christ, which is what he kind of goes to expound on. But just really sit with that for a second. God chose you. He knew you. He knew what he wanted to do with your life. He knew what your family was going to be. He knew where you were going to go and choices you were going to make. And he's loved you through all of that. And Paul wants the Ephesian believers to know that, that God chose you, that you're where you're at because he chose you. To be encouraged by that and uplifted by that. And it was by grace. Grace is another common theme throughout verses 3 through 14. God choosing you wasn't like picking the biggest, strongest kid for dodgeball. It wasn't like he looked at you and said, yep, that's the one right there. They're going to have the most talent and skill and ability and all those kinds of things, so I'm choosing them. That's how we think in terms of how we choose things oftentimes. But he chose us by grace, in love, because of who we are, not because of what we brought to the table, which makes that even more powerful to understand. And to get excited about. So we see that Paul, Paul tells us that the Father chose us by grace, not because we deserved it. And then he tells us that God, the Father, did something else. That the Father chose us, not only did he choose us, but he adopted us. He adopted us. Now when we think adoption, we often think in terms of somebody who's outside of a family being brought into a particular family. And while that is true, you know, when you're speaking of Jewish, the Jewish people that God had chosen and then the Gentiles that he grafted in. We can think of it in those terms. But more accurately, the term adopted in this context actually means to elevate in status. It means to elevate in status. What that's like is this. If you 
looked at your child or your grandchild, and they're 12 years old, and you decide to just give them a driver's license as though you could do that. And just give them the keys to the car and just let them go. You're essentially elevating them to a status in society that is beyond where they should be necessarily. You've elevated them to that place. And what it means to be adopted by God and adopted by the Lord in this context and in our own lives is that when we get to know or when we know Jesus Christ as our Savior and become a believer, in God's eyes, we are elevated or adopted to a place of status where we have access to all the blessings of being a believer. That's important because that ties into grace as well. Because grace is what? Unearned favor. And if we have to arrive at a level of maturity or come to the place where we get to be good enough as a Christian to get access to God's blessing, that removes grace, doesn't it? But being adopted means we're elevated to a status that when we accept Christ, we have access to all of God's blessings, whether we just came to him or we've been a believer for 50 years. And when he's talking about adoption, that's what he means there. That we've been adopted by God the Father. And that when he looks at us, we have access to all of the same blessings that anyone else who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. From the seemingly holiest, as we might look at them, to the least holy, as we as humans might look at them in error. But what we see here is that we're adopted, we're elevated to a status of full access to the blessings of God which should also be an encouragement to us when we're struggling in life, when we're struggling with wondering about our place or if God hears us or where we are with him or with other people. That in Christ we are, and the word, the phrase in Christ is used nine times in verses 3 through 14. In Christ or in him, either one of those two. Nine times in 3 through 14. So one of the themes here is that Paul wants them to understand that when you are in Christ, you have access to all of these blessings because of being in him or in Christ, and that they come by grace. Those are the key themes running through really most of Ephesians, but particularly in this introductory setting, a section right here. So we see here in the text that we've been chosen by God the Father, that he chose us not because of how awesome we were, but because of how awesome he saw that we were, not objectively, but really subjectively from the Lord. We are adopted. We've been given full status and access to all the rich blessings that we can receive. And that's not any part of what we've earned or how mature we are in Christ. We just have access because of Jesus in him. Not only did the Father choose us, and not only has he accepted us, as we saw in verse 5, but in verse 6 we find that he further accepted us. He accepted us as he would his own son. Jesus Christ. So we saw in verse 5, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. When he talks about blessing in the beloved, that's looking at us like he does his own son, Jesus Christ, and that the blessing that we have is his acceptance and seeing us as like his son, Jesus Christ. And there's other theological terminology that we'll probably see in other places in the text in other times, but there's also a legal aspect of that, in that when he looks at us, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. He's an advocate for us. But he has accepted us as he would his own son. So we don't have to stand out here and try to earn it. 
which is what we as Christians so often want to do, right? We want to have our Christian checklist and make sure that we're doing all the do's and don'ting all the don'ts. And we think, yeah, if I can just do all the do's and don't all the don'ts, then I'm in. God will like me more. That's not what he says at all, and we see that here in the text. We have been accepted by God by virtue of our relationship with his son, and he looks at us like his son, which is outstanding and even ties in with everything that he said before about being handed the keys to the car before legal age, getting all the access to all the blessings, no matter how old and mature you are in Christ. He chose us. He adopted us. He's accepted us. So what do we have to truly feel like we're missing out on by being a believer? We're tempted by the world to try to do it the world's way, to try to find happiness in the, by the world's means, to try to fill different voids in our lives that we just don't feel like we're getting with God and the church. And yet I want to remind you tonight what Paul wanted to remind the Ephesian church of, that you have an abundance of blessings just by virtue of your relationship with God. And yes, your life is going to feel empty if you ignore all of those and if you don't live in Jesus Christ because that's where they're found. So yes, you're going to struggle. Yes, you're going to, you're going to find a feeling of emptiness and a feeling of, of loss when you're not living in Christ because you're already in him and you were intended to receive those blessings. And I want to challenge you and encourage you tonight. If you haven't taken the time to think on the blessings that you have from God the Father who loves you and who sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you, if you haven't taken the time at any point recently to really think about how special God looks at you and thinks you are, maybe it's time to do that. To reflect on the fact that God sent his son for you, that he chose you, that he adopted you, that he accepted you. Because that's what Paul wanted them to see and that's what God wants us to see as we begin Ephesians tonight. That God loved you, that he chose you, that he accepted, that he adopted you. And we see that the first source of blessings that we receive from Scripture come from God the Father. But thankfully, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He then moves into beginning to talk about the specific blessings that we receive from Jesus. Do you realize that Jesus wasn't just fire insurance to get you out of hell? That he wasn't just a buddy that bailed you out of jail and then let you go to live your life? That Jesus loves you, and he did more than just die for you. He continues to live for you. Do you live for him? We see the blessings that we receive from Jesus Christ, or really as we see in the text here, God the Son, the first one, is that he redeemed us. He redeemed us. We were bought back from the power and the presence and the slavery of sin. We were freed from that through Jesus Christ. The beginning of verse 7. So we see, in him we have redemption, or rather we are redeemed. Through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, or another word for trespasses, sins. We're redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Again, according to what? Not because we were good enough, not because we checked all the do's and checked all the don'ts, but how? Through 
according to the riches of his grace. So being saved from our sin is also grace. It's also something we couldn't earn, something that we couldn't be good enough to get. We're redeemed by Jesus Christ. We were bought back. We were paid for so that we could then live for him in relationship with him. And that's exciting. That's exciting because when we're redeemed from that, that means we don't have to live in that anymore. We don't have to do what the flesh tells us to do. We don't have to do what the world tells us to do. We're free to make our own choices in Christ. But when we're not in Christ and we don't know him, we're compelled and, and really we don't know anything else or better to do those things that we shouldn't do because we don't know why we shouldn't. But now, because of the power that we have in Jesus Christ, we're free to choose to serve the Lord, to live for him, to have a, a life of purpose and significance in him, to have an eternity with God. There's so much at stake here in our relationship with Jesus Christ that we just take for granted. And we forget that he didn't just give us a, a get-out-of-jail-free card by dying for us on the cross, but he bought us back from all those terrible things. He paid the price with his own life. We're redeemed in the beginning of verse 7. But not only did he redeem us and free us from that, but he also forgave us. Imagine that. Imagine he goes and posts your bail for jail and lets you out, but then says, you don't have to pay me back. I took care of it already. You don't owe anything. You can't do anything in order to pay back what I paid for you. All I ask is that you live differently and that we have a relationship. Just stay in touch regularly. We would go, you know, uh, that doesn't seem like that big of a request, right? If one of our friends did that for us. They posted our bail and then said, you know what, you don't need to pay me back the 10%, 100 grand or whatever, however much it was. We're good. I took care of it. Don't even worry about it. But let's stay in touch and let's talk regularly and, you know, I want a relationship with you. Okay, all right, sure. But yet so often, we just lose Jesus' number. And we're like, ah, whatever. I'm just, I won't get in trouble again. I'm going back to doing how I'm going to do things. He redeemed us, and now he did redeem us. He forgave us. The second part of verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. We did nothing to deserve it. And not only did he redeem us and forgive us, he also repurposed us. Yeah, think about that. You have maybe an old item around your house that doesn't really do what you wanted it to do anymore, but you, you fix it a little bit. You repurpose it for maybe even something else. And we find that here with our own lives, that we're repurposed. Verses 8 through 10, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. How? According to his purpose. Prior to being repurposed by God, we're living our lives with our own purpose. At least that's what we think anyway. We're living for us. We're trying to survive. We're trying to make it through the day. We're trying to do what we need to do to pay the bills. But God says, i got a different purpose for you. I'm going to repurpose your life. And it's according to my will. And it's going to be so much better than anything you can come up with on your own. We're repurposed in him according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. It comes back to Jesus, Christ the Son. 
our purpose is found in Jesus. Our life is repurposed for him so that we're living for him and not ourselves anymore. And that's exciting because it opens up an entire world that we didn't know that we had before. An entire life that we didn't know that we had before. That we can make a difference in the lives of other people. And that we can be significant in the lives of others for him. And point others to him. So that they can know true purpose for their life as well. We are repurposed in God. Through Jesus Christ, God the Son. He redeemed us, forgave us, repurposed us. And he also inherited us. This is interesting and amazing, and Paul wanted them to really understand this, that not only do we get an inheritance, that we are one too. Because when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, and we come into the kingdom of God, and we have a relationship with Him, we get an inheritance of all of those blessings of being considered sons and daughters of God. We get that inheritance that we have to look forward to in heaven, not only that, though, we are an inheritance because we are inheritance for Jesus Christ because we essentially become the, the temple of Christ. We, we become the body of Christ. And in the future, we find that we become the bride of Christ. So not only do we receive an inheritance, but we also are one. Think about how awesome and special that is. That God loved us so much that he didn't just save us and let us go do our own thing that we have a purpose and that someday we will know what it's like to be truly married to Jesus Christ and have a relationship with him for eternity. The Christian life is so exciting, and we as humans tend to make it so boring. And we look at a passage like this and we yawn, and we go, there's so much theological jargon here. And we go, I'm going to move on to something that's spelled out a little more clearly. And we miss out on all this awesome stuff that God has for us and that he wants us to understand through what Paul writes in Ephesians. He says, not, not only are you an inheritance, not only do you get an inheritance, you are one. And he's talking, and we, we miss this and we skip over this sometimes, but he's talking to both those who were Jewish, who were Jewish people that converted to, to Christianity, not only them, but he was also talking to the Gentile converts as well. So that's why we have this picture of unity and diversity in the church at Ephesus, because he, Paul specifies it here. He says to the Jewish believers, he speaks to them in verse, the first part of verse 12, when he says, the first to hope in Christ. He's talking about how the gospel went first to the Jewish people, which it did in fact. And then later on, God called Paul to minister to the Gentiles and for them to come to know Jesus Christ. But he's speaking specifically first in the first part of verse 12. He says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. But he doesn't stop there because he wants them to know that these blessings, that these things that Jesus Christ did for them, he did for all of us, whether Jew or Gentile or Greek or Roman, all of us who know him, who are in Christ. So he says, so that we who were the first to hope, and then in verse 13, he says, in him you also. So not only those who were the first to hope, but also in him, you also. He's talking about the rest of the folks there. Both the, the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. We were all inherited to be a part of the body of Christ, the temple of Christ, the bride of Christ. And not only did we get an inheritance in him, but we are an inheritance for him. And that's amazing stuff. 
Because when the world tells you you're not special, when the world tells you you don't matter, when the world tells you you don't have value and that you're not any better than anyone else, you're not really significantly, like as far as humanly speaking. But in Jesus Christ, you are. You have purpose, you have significance, you have value. You are special in him. By grace. Not because of anything that you did or any skills or abilities that you have or whatever. It's all in him. We see the second source of our blessing. The second believer blessing source is God the Son. He redeemed, he forgave, he repurposed, it repurposed us and he inherited us. Now, what would a strong theological treatise be when we look at God the Father and God the Son without taking a look at the third person of the Trinity, right? I mean, you had to see this was coming, right? Like the trilogy of every good movie series. And we know the last part is going to be God the Spirit, who is just as much God as the Father and Jesus Christ. Sometimes we look at the Spirit as some kind of immaterial force, like the force. But God, the Holy Spirit, is just as much person and has just as much personality as the Father and the Son. And we forget that, and we shouldn't. Because God, the Spirit, does some significant things in our lives as well and blesses us in some significant ways. So we look at verse 13. It says, In Him you also, so everyone, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, Jesus Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed. And that's the first blessing that we see that we get from the Spirit of God, is He seals us. Now, sealing has some important theological implications for us as believers. There's a couple different things. The first way that we can think of in terms of sealing is, have you ever tried to open a bottle that had a childproof cap or had a safety seal that seemed impossible to get off? And you're fighting with it, and you're fighting with it, and you're like, okay, let me find a knife to just jam into this thing. i got to get in there somehow because I need what's in there, right? That's sealed really well, isn't it? Nothing can get in there. You can't get in. No matter, it seems like you've got to move heaven and earth to get into this thing, right? Or you hand it to a three-year-old, and they're like, whoop. And you're like, oh, okay, that works. Uh, but I digress. When we talk about sealing in the Holy Spirit, when we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, our salvation, we are sealed in Him. And the devil, and the world, and sin, and even our own choices can do nothing to unseal us from what we have to look forward to in God. We are sealed for eternity. There's a safety seal that can't be broken by anyone or anything. That's awesome. Think about, let that settle in. When you think that you've crossed a line that God can't forgive, it's not true. That's a lie from Satan. When you feel like you can't be good enough to try to earn your way into God's favor so that he thinks you're good enough, that's a lie. It's just not true. When you know Jesus Christ is your Savior and you have that relationship with him and you've made that choice to be with him, you're sealed. You're safety sealed. And no one can puncture it. It's not only security, but it's also authenticity. One of the things about, because uh, many people know, and those of you who don't know that I'm a bit of a comic nerd, well, in the comic book world, we have uh, different comics that sometimes get signed. And in some cases, that adds more value to the book when you have either the writer or the artist or somebody attached to the book sign it with their signature. But there are people out there that will try to forge a signature in order to make it look like it's signed by somebody else that it's not. 
And there are actual companies that will authenticate whether or not that signature is real. And when they do, they place their seal on that book, showing that, yes, we know that this is the real deal. It's authentic. This was signed by that person. There is no doubt. And there is a seal of authenticity on that book. And when we come to know Jesus Christ, we have a seal placed on us by the Holy Spirit as well. So not only are we secure in him, but there's also no question regarding our salvation. So we don't have to stop and wonder if we've somehow lost it, or we need to get saved more, or even resaved. Because once we know Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit authentically seals us in him. So that's another way in which we can view this idea of a seal in Scripture. Not only is it an issue of security, it's also an issue of authenticity. And then the last thing is it's an issue of identification. When letters were the primary form of communication way back then, uh, often whoever wrote the letter would take wax and they would drip wax over the, the actual um, closing of the letter. And then they would take a stamp and they would place their stamp on it, usually like uh, uh, the first letter of their last name or some kind of family seal. So that when you looked at it, you knew this was for that person. It was going there. And if anyone tried to tamper with that seal or break that seal, they would know that there was an issue and somebody needed to be dealt with. And that was how they, it was kind of like old school encrypting way back in the day with wax. But when you looked at that seal, when you looked at that seal, you knew whose that letter was, where it was going and who it belonged to. And it's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. When we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we're sealed. We have his mark, his stamp upon our lives. And there's no question who we belong to and why that matters. And Paul wants them to understand this. You were sealed in the Holy Spirit. It's a matter of security, a matter of authenticity, and a matter of identity. That's how much you matter to God. Even when it doesn't feel like it, you can go back to that, and you can know that you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, and that he has marked you for eternity. But he doesn't only seal you. There's something else that he does as well, which is just as awesome. And that's he guarantees you. So as we look here at the second part, or verse 14 rather. So we saw uh, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, you're also guaranteed with God. That's like a down payment for eternity. It's kind of like at Christmas time if you can't afford to pay for something in its entirety, you put a down payment on it or you, you lay it away. And it's the same thing here where we have a little bit of eternity in our hearts and we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And we know what it means to be redeemed and born again on the inside. And we know that that's a guarantee that when we pass from this earth and we go to be in the presence of God that we're going to re then receive all of the other blessings that we can't have access to here. It's a guarantee of the things to come in eternity. It's a down payment and investment, paying in earnest for us, so that one day when we pass on, we can look forward to everything that we're going to gain when we go to heaven and we go to eternity to be with God. And again, this is exciting stuff. You can either look at this as a dry theology lesson and pass over it and go, I don't understand those words anyway. Or you can really dig into it and really understand the awesome things that we see here that should change our lives. That if we let these things really drive our thinking as Christians, it would change not only how we look at life, 
our lives, the lives of others. It would change how we look at salvation, and it would change how we live, and how we behave, and how we interact with others. That's what Paul wanted them to understand. We see here the Holy Spirit that comes to live within us when we accept Christ, seals and guarantees us, and really should be the driving person in our lives when it comes to making the choices that we make in life. Paul talks about in Galatians, living in the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And it all stems from this. Not living according to the fruit of the flesh and the works of the flesh, but rather through the Spirit and the Spirit working through us and bearing fruit in our lives. What is your life a reflection of? Is it a reflection of the Holy Spirit sealing and guaranteeing you? Is it a reflection of the power that we have in Him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit energizing our lives? Or is it a reflection of the flesh? And for whatever reason, you're just choosing to forego all the blessings that God has for you, and you're going to try to do it your way. Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to know they're missing out on so much if they don't live in Him by grace. They're missing out on the power of the blessings that come from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And that's the encouragement that I have for you tonight as well. The same one Paul had for them and has for us. Is we need to look at whether or not we're paying attention to the blessings that He has for us. What do we learn from this text? What do we take away from it? What should be our practical living out of this, because we're not going to wait until chapter 4 to start talking about how we can live this stuff out, because it should be changing our thinking now. We learn from this particular text that as those who are born again, those who know Jesus Christ, we've received multiple blessings from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He chose us, adopted us, accepted us, redeemed us, forgave us, repurposed us, inherited us, sealed us, and guaranteed us. Whew, that is quite a list, right? But why not pick one and maybe focus on it for a week and really focus on living in that concept and understanding what it means. That's the first way you can apply that tonight. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, take a look at this text again and do a little bit of a study on one of the themes that we see here and really ask yourself, how do I see this in my life? Do I see this in my life? And if I don't, what do I need to do to see it. And if you need some assistance with that, I would love to talk with you about what it means to be all of these things and how you can live those things out practically. So we have all these different themes presented here, all these different blessings. Pick a blessing and be blessed by it for a week. And then either stay with it or move to another one the next week. Another theme that we see here in the text that we really need to get a hold of, which he sprinkled throughout, we see in verse 6, and we see in verse 12, and we see in verse 14, the phrase, to the praise of his glory. Over and over again. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glory. Time and time again throughout the text. And really, that's what all this is about. The blessings that you receive are not just about you. They're about also praising and glorifying Jesus Christ, and God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Spirit. Paul tells them, this is all the awesome stuff going on from God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and it's for Him. It's not just to give you a better life and all of that, but it's to His praise and His glory. 
That's the second thing you can do, is you can embrace the message of to the praise of his glorious grace and take the time to thank him and praise him for all the blessings that he's given you. Make the time to thank him for the life that you have and that he's given you and all the, the blessings that you have in him. And then share those blessings with others. Rather than looking at the bad, terrible things all the time of life and looking at how awful things are going, take the time and make the time to look at how those blessings are being reflected in your life and you can see them and share that. How are things going? Even if they're going bad, well, I'm redeemed. God bought me back. I don't have to go to hell. I don't have to suffer for my sin. I mean, it's right there. That's important stuff. And the last thing, really, and the most important thing in the message of Ephesians is ultimately to give your life to Jesus Christ, to understand what it means to be in him. In him. Because without being in him, you don't have access to any of these blessings that he gives to those who know him. And you become in Christ when you ask him to be your savior, to forgive you for your sin, the things that you've done against God and against the Bible. And you give your life to him and say, God, I want to live for you. And I want to know your son, Jesus Christ, and have a relationship with him. I don't want to just get out of jail. I don't want him to just pay my fines. I want to know him personally and have a relationship with him. Father God, thank you so much tonight for all the blessings that you show us from your word, from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Lord, I pray that we would put these into practice that we would understand the concepts and seek to learn more about them and really live in them. Not just let them be arbitrary theological terms that we try to impress people with, but really see how these things are fleshed out practically in our lives. Help us to know what it means to be truly blessed and then to tell others about it. And Lord, I do pray if there's anyone who's listening who doesn't know what it means to be born again, who doesn't know what it means to be in Christ, who doesn't know what it means to be saved or be a Christian, God, please give them the courage through your spirit to reach out to me or to someone that they know is a Christian and to talk with them about it. God, I pray for their salvation tonight. And it's in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week.